Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have on an old friend and a legendary microcap investor, Ian Castle. Ian, how's it going? It's going great, Tom. I appreciate you inviting me on the program. Yeah, it's been quite a while. I'm trying to think about when we first met. I want to say seven, eight years ago. I, I'm not sure. I I think that's pretty accurate. I know you were you were in college or even before college, maybe. I, it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, jeez, I uh, I came. I think I came across Microcap Club in high school, and I was just blown away by like the level of depth. And I was like, I got to get on here, and I got to meet the guy running this. Yeah, no, it's it. That's the cool thing about Microcap Club too, is we get people in there that are are not only maybe established fund managers, but also you know retail and even you know younger retail investors too. I mean, what I found is, and it might be the same. Uh, in your universe now is you know a lot of the ideas and the, a lot of these ideas are found by young gritty investors and so we definitely want those folks just like you were and still are you're still very young compared to me especially you know on microcap <laughs> clubs. <so. laughs> <laughs> it was uh yeah it's it was uh it was daunting trying to get on there and it, i'm glad i was able to be a part of what you built for a little while and ian just um you know i know you very well but just for people who who aren't aware of who you are can you give the quick like you know 60 seconds who you are and what microcap club is sure yeah uh i'm a full-time private microcap investor and really well Maybe I shouldn't say I'm a private microcap investor right now. I've just in the last year or two, I've actually taken on some addition, some investors, some outside investors to kind of invest alongside me in the ideas of my own capital. But really, from a relatively young age, call it sophomore in college, set out for a goal to be kind of financially independent and be a full time private investor. And uh, lucky enough, and a little bit of skill involved, and a little bit of luck. But uh, by the time of 2008, actually right in the middle of the economic crisis, pulled the trigger, cut the safety net of income, and just made a go at it as a full-time private microcap investor. And so uh, two, three years after that, uh, you know, I, I always wanted to create a community for microcap investors, people that are experienced in this space have always been interested in what other experienced investors are looking at, what ideas they're looking at and why, and wanted to go to have that conversation kind of in a private forum so people would be feel safer to to talk about the ideas and what they liked and so launched microcap club in 2011 and uh, the first couple of years of that it was just honestly me talking to myself and i figured 
worst case scenario is nobody would join this forum and it would just be my personal diary for me to look back <laughs> on and, and see all the mistakes I've made, quite honestly. Uh, but luckily, attracted some good investors over the years. And, uh, you know, after five, six years of that, you know, really it was at a spot to where it was really a, a great tool for not only my personal investing as an idea generator, I wanted to see more ideas, but also a networking tool and a bunch of other things today. We have about 200 members from across the world that are part of MicroCap Club. And then we have a few hundred um, subscribers, people that if they don't have the time or ability to apply to get into MicroCap Club as a member, which is free, you can just simply, you know, basically for 500 bucks a year, you get view-only access of their forum. Yeah, that's, that's you're humble, so I'll say it. I mean, these are 200 of the top people in the world. The quality is just unmatched for your platform, which I love. I mean, did you think early on, like, you know, when you're thinking about those two-sided platform economics or, or just two-sided marketplaces, how did you attract those early kind of authors or members to the platform? Because it seems kind of hard to literally build a platform from scratch. It's extremely and excruciatingly hard, especially when it's a private forum. It's one thing if it was public, you know, and you would attract just the public eye and public attention and anybody could join. You know, I've no doubt that if Microcap Club was public, we'd have, you know, fifty thousand people on there and this, that, and the other thing. But people wouldn't really have the comfort level. And quite honestly, then you're just like any other public forum in a lot of ways, where you, you know, a lot of the uh, the bad actors or just novices kind of clog up the threads where it's really hard to to find the value add. And so from kind of early on, you know, I really wanted to keep it focused on experienced Microcap investors. They would be the only ones that would be allowed to post and provide content. And luckily, by the time I launched, I had a network of maybe 20 or 30 investors that I knew up to that point that I knew would uh, would probably want to be a part of the community. And you know, when it launched, just like everything, when you launch your friends, your family, you know, they all tell you, great, great idea. Yeah, go for it. And then when you launch, you know, it's like crickets. And that's what I found actually with a lot of the folks that I knew back then that said that we would join and participate is, you know, not that many people were active, um, you know, because, you know, people were pulled in different directions. And what I found was I really had to start from scratch to grow that. And, uh, you know, that's really where social media, you know, Twitter and just continuing to have conversations with folks. And it was just, it was just a grind, you know, pulling people into microcap club, but that's always been sort of our, approach, at least from the microcap club standpoint, we don't do a lot of push marketing. It's more like pool marketing, you know, through our blog posts to through social media, attracting the right type of people into your brand is important if you want to sustain a long-term one. Yeah, I'm with you there. Do you think that the level of candidness or the level of depth is better since microcap club is not public? Like, how do you think through, you know, your option to keep it more closed doors? Yes. You know, I think there is a certain degree of comfort in the fact that it's a private forum. But at the same time, I try to let people know that just because it's private doesn't mean you should be, you know, sharing things that you shouldn't be sharing. You know, these are public equities. You know, there's rules about uh, what should be discussed, what can be discussed, types of information. And, um, you know, we're really, you know, we're, we're critical and cautious on that as well, just to make sure that this isn't just a, you know, people can just come on here and spout whatever they want to do. And, and we're trying to keep it cordial you know, as well, you know, we tried to make sure that's a positive place. It's not just a bunch of people coming on and, you know, bashing a company as well. 
So we try to keep it more of a positive place of finding ideas. It's not a place to come on and try to find, you know, create a, a thread on why you should short company XYZ. Yeah, no, that's that's annoying. And I mean, the entry is unique. I haven't seen your model anywhere else, like where you can either submit a thesis and potentially get approved or pay to join. What's the approval rating on people submitting a stock pitch to get approved on MicroCap Club for membership? Sure. So, I mean, to, to become a member on MicroCap Club, you have to submit a two, three-page investment thesis on your favorite MicroCap stock. And then at the end of every month, we vote on all the applications that have been aggregated during the previous month. And our membership reads them and votes yes or no on the quality level of that of that thesis. And normally, in any given month, we usually have 10 to 15 applications per month. And I would say, on average, maybe two to four get in every month, um, somewhere around there. And so, you know, it's probably around you know twenty percent of applications end up becoming members. But you can always apply again, you know, down the road. So, and what, and what we find is a lot of we find that a lot of of our subscribers that subscribe, you know, they pay five hundred dollars just to get view only access of the forum. They ultimately, um, many of them, just end up. Uh, becoming members once they have a better idea and become better investors themselves and, and have the ability to actually apply and formulate a thesis on a microcap. No, that, that's huge. And um, I mean, the results on the former, like really solid. I mean, what are your, like, what are the top picks you've seen over the couple, you know, last couple of years? And I don't want to like, you know, say that, you know, this happens every time because obviously there's risks involved, but I mean, some of the companies that your community has uncovered are are pretty wild. I mean, like straight path communications, a lot of you know normal or traditional large cap investors are aware of that given Verizon. And then there's Expel and Kuro Medical System, stuff like that. But what stands out to you? Yeah. I mean, the other difficult thing when you look at what we do is we're not, you know, people, I think um, when people come to subscribe to Microcap Club, I think some people figure that they're going to come on and we're just kind of similar to a guru service where we're going to give you our top five picks, go out and buy them. You know, we'll keep you updated on why you own them, that type of thing. And that's not what we're about. You know, really, when somebody's subscribing to MicroCap Club, they're getting access to 200 people that are experienced talking about different types of companies. Uh, there's 600 companies now profiled on MicroCap Club to give you a, a round number to it. And so over the years, over the, out of those 600 companies that have been profiled, you know, there's winners and there's losers, you know, and probably over time, it would be pretty close to what you think. Probably about half of the companies that have been profiled are up and half of them are down. And, you know, just kind of like when venture capital, you know, there's definitely a power law to investing in these micro cap companies, you know, meaning that, you know, if you invest in 10 of them, you know, you might have a you know half of them that go down. You might have you know another quarter that go up, and then you have two or three out of the ten that you know become multi-baggers, hopefully for you. And so it's kind of a similar type of performance that we see overall. And um, I believe last time I checked, you know, of the so 600 companies that have been profiled, I think it was around a hundred, hundred or so have doubled or more, and maybe 50 have you know quadrupled or more. You can see the performance. Actually, we have our top performers on microcapclub.com so people can see it. But there's definitely been a lot of, of multi-baggers that have been talked about on Microcap Club. And, and that's what we're about. It's not a guru service. It's not about, you know, here's a bunch of 10 picks, go buy them. It's, you know, here's some conversations. People are, are 
attracted to different types of situations. And it's up to you to kind of formulate if you want to, you know, be active in the stock or not. Yeah, no, I, I like that you guys are a community of sharing like the, a thesis and there's intelligent conversation back and forth instead of a guru service. That's why I love kind of what you, you've built there. And I guess the other point there is that you guys, I mean, you're coming up on your 10 year anniversary here, right? I mean, I guess the, the other question for you is, I mean, did you expect to to hit this level of kind of uh, community engagement by now? Or, I mean, it's it's awesome that you guys are have grown to the level that you're at. Well, you know, it's it's funny you hit on your question there about engagement. When we first launched the club in 2011, we didn't really prune back our members. So there's people that get in through applying and and are there for free, but they get they prove that they are a member. You know, what what happened was we quickly got up to three, four, five hundred members, you know, very quickly. And what I found was the engagement though was low as a percentage of the overall numbers. And then I realized, you know, it's pointless to have a thousand people in here if only 50 of them are actually using it. I'd rather have a small kind of intimate group that are actually using, you know, microcap club. And so I think it was 2014 or so, you know, decided to kind of have rules set where if you're a member, you, you know, and it doesn't cost you anything to be a member, you know, you have to be active. And if you're not active, you're going to be cut and pruned out. And so we started pruning back the tree. And what we found was the engagement levels just continued to increase and increase and increase. And, you know, today, you know, you, we have 200 members and there's probably 150 of them are on there every day. Um, that's and, insane. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's the type of engagement. I'd rather have that than being able to, you know, showcase, oh, we have 10,000 members, but only, you know, 30 people are on there. You know, I'd rather have a small intimate group um, that we have. So it, it, it's turned out really well, but it's taken a long time. There was no quick fix to it. It just took time. Yeah, no, like, I'm, oh, uh, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, a lot of crypto happens on Telegram group chats and Twitter. And I know that sounds weird to traditional investors, but the best groups that I'm in have literally sub 200 members or less. So it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And the, the other point for you is, I mean, you said you had five or 600 companies profiled and, and these are, you know, in-depth kind of, or not in-depth, but, you know, like high quality coverage of these companies first. Doesn't it get really hard for somebody new to come in and, you know, find a new company? Like it, it's got to get hard over time, right? It is. It's, it's one of the things that we think about quite a bit is, you know, if you're new to this and you're kind of just tossed into the forum, it can be somewhat overwhelming you know, because of the amount of conversations that are happening, the amount of companies that are now on there. Uh, and there's a few w ways or tools we've tried to make it easier for people to find things. Like, for example, you know, the companies themselves are broken down by uh, by sector. And so you can just go and look at the technology sector, you know, and if you're not interested in basic materials, which is kind of mining, oil and gas, you know, you don't have to follow that one. And you can follow these industries and you can be alerted every time there's a post on that industry. And then when you uh, drill down into a company or two or 10 that you like that you want to follow, you can follow those company threads and be alerted in real time when there's a post on there by anyone. And also what we found to kind of sort through that clutter is every single member that is on the club, which means that they've profiled a company, at least one, if not more. You know, we actually track their performance as a member. So, if Tom, if you were on there and you profiled company XYZ at a dollar per share when you, the day you profiled it, we record that and then we track that company's progress. 
and we actually rank our members based on the aggregate gains or losses of what they've profiled in the club. And so you can kind of go on there and view our member ranking. And uh, I believe Maj is number one right now. And so he his member ranking is 4,041. So that what that tells you, that ranking, is that every single company, both the good and the bad, if you added up all the performance since they were profiled by Maj, would equate to he's profiled 4,041 percentage points of gains since he's been a member. Wow. Yeah, you know, I, and, I love Maj. He is, he's something else. Yeah, and so Connor Haley, 3,700. Paul Andrillo, 3,600. I'm up there for some reason. So, But it's a good way. <laughs> it's a good, like, simple metric. I mean, it's not perfect, um, but it's a very simple way. You know, if you profile two companies and your first one went up 200%, your next one went down 50%, your ranking would be 150. You know, so the negative ones work against you. That's that's interesting. And when people are giving these pitches on Microcap Club, I mean, I was on Microcap Club and, and then I had a stint in equity research so that, you know, very different kind of initiation posts, if you will. How do you, for those unaware, how do you encompass an entire thesis in three pages? Or is that the point? That's sort of the point. What I find is it's sometimes, <laughs> not sometimes, it's, what I find is it's almost easier to write a call it 20 page investment thesis than it is to write a two or three page investment thesis really well. And so when you go into our application section of the website, it lays out sort of guidelines of, of what we're looking for, you know, like a company description, define the market opportunity, the share structure of the company, the competition, the management, financials, financing risk, catalysts, you know, what do you see? Uh, if you talk to the company, what do you learn? current valuation, your future expectations, you know, and maybe even a price target and the supporting logic, you know, for that price target. And so, you know, kind of hitting on those things, I think it's, it's, uh, sounds easy to do a two page investment thesis, but it's hard to actually boil it down into two pages, hit all those things and do it in a <laughs> coherent and intelligent way. So uh, I think it's harder to almost write a two page really good investment thesis than it is to write a 20 page one. No, I'm with you there. And, and not to detract from microcaps to crypto, but just because it's kind of interesting. I mean, a lot of crypto is sub 50 or sub $100 million tokens that most are a joke, right? But some actually make sense. And a lot of it comes down to you know having a quick thesis because it's very hard to model or if not impossible. So a lot of these things do come down to kind of just having more of a high level thesis of why a project or a platform works, why the team is solid and why the token uh, or in your case, the equity would accrue value. So it, it definitely makes a lot of sense. And Ian, switching over to, so you have Microcap Club. It's been over a decade, incredible stuff. Let's talk about you as an investor. What do you invest in in the space from a sector perspective or a theme perspective today? And, and how has that changed over the years? Sure. So if you, if you and your listeners want to think about the public market ecosystem, so public stocks, in North America, there's approximately 20,000 publicly traded companies in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is about half of those companies are actually microcap companies. So that's defined as having a market capitalization less than 300 million. So there's around 10,000 of them. And what happens is the, the smaller, if you're just looking at those 10,000 microcap companies, is the, the smaller you go, the more inefficient uh, the prices are because um, it's hard for larger I won't go say smarter, but larger institutional capital to participate in a very small microcap company because it doesn't have the liquidity 
for it to be worth their while. You know, it's it's hard for a five hundred million dollar fund or a billion or ten billion, you know, to worry about what a fifty million dollar market cap micro cap is doing when it trades twenty thousand dollars of stock a day. You know, it's kind of pointless to them. And so what what happens is, you know, even sub one hundred million market cap, so the lower third of the micro cap ecosystem, there's still you know, six, 7,000 companies, you know, that's more companies that are on the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange combined, you know, so it's a, you still have a lot of companies that are small that the institutions can't own until their stocks go up and become more liquid. So there's a structural advantage for small, astute capital to be investing in small public companies uh, because, you know, larger, smarter guys can't buy them until they, you know, their management teams perform, stocks go up, and their stocks become more liquid. And there's historical research been done on that. If you look at the CSRB data of all public companies, the best performing decile of the public markets is the smallest decile of the public markets since 1926. And it's like a huge difference between the smallest decile and the next best one. If you look at some white papers done by Roger Ibbotson, who's a Yale finance professor, also uh, manages um, an asset management firm, he's done a lot of research on illiquidity. And what he found was the best place to invest since 1971 is in illiquid microcap companies. Uh, and so there's a lot of you know research being done in this space that proves kind of what I'm saying. It's just not me up here touting myself or the club or whatever. You know, there's history. You know, to, on our side as well, um, and yet, you know, there's a, there's a lot of negativity around what we do too, as you well know, Tom. You know, referring to what we what I do is kind of penny stock investing or things like that. So when we look at the ecosystem, what I invest in, I'm really trying to find the smallest, least liquid, least institutionally owned, best businesses I can find that are run and managed by great leaders. And that's a mouthful of a sentence with too many commas. Um, <laughs> but that is, in general, what I'm looking for. And you know, it's what I've been doing. I would say that one sentence of what I do is what I've been doing you know, pretty consistently for, you know, call it seven, eight years. When I started out as a microcap investor uh, in the early 2000s, I would characterize my type of investing as story stock investing. So <laughs> trying to find momentum. Um, trying to find a stock that has a great story with it. And, you know, I really didn't quite honestly look at financials too much. Um, and uh, I did decently well in there. I mean, it helped build up my capital base over those years. But then I ended up pivoting kind of more from that into more mining, uh, precious metals, uh, into um, biotech, actually, from there. And then from there, I moved more into the kind of traditional compounder you know, high growth, profitable companies, GARP type companies uh, in the late 2000s into, you know, 2010 type time period, you know, but it's a little bit of a non-traditional path just because I, you know, unlike a lot of people that started reading Warren Buffett when they were two years old, you know, I really didn't even read a Berkshire Hathaway annual letter until I was already a full-time private microcap investor. Um, and I don't say that to have a chip on my shoulder. I just say that to mean that, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can kind of reach your potential as an investor. It doesn't have to be a traditional path. Yeah, that's an incredible journey. And there's a lot to unpack there. I'd, I'd want to ask one kind of devil's advocate question, especially because I was also in the space and I still invest in 
you know, sub $300 million market cap tokens, you know, today. So it's kind of a similar structure. How do you think through that negative connotation that the space gets? Like, I mean, there's clearly research that you've shared, but when people think of, you know, investing in a $20 million stock, they're like, oh, it's a joke. It'll never grow. But meanwhile, you're here investing in, you know, owning a, you know, potentially a few percent of a company, you're following leadership. It's a multi-year investment. How often do these companies, these microcaps attract institutional investment? Like how often does that illiquidity become liquidity and there's the potential to exit at large uh, valuations? Because I want to kind of paint the picture here that, you know, this is a reality because you're clearly doing it. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's hard. It is hard. I mean, it, Probably one of the areas that my investing changed the most from even in my earlier years was, you know, in my earlier years, I would take a big position all at once into one of these companies. And I probably got lucky, to be honest with you, early on where, you know, a few of the things I bought big worked, you know, and that works until it doesn't. Uh, and what 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 happened over time is you have enough experience with enough companies where you realize, you know, these are small companies and you're buying these things not because you think you can make 20% over the next couple of years you're buying these things cuz you think you can make multiples on your money over you know a 3 5 10 year period of time and there's no reason to jump in with both feet with sometimes unproven leaders of companies and even business models and so what I do today is I take a little bit of a smaller position up front um, that doesn't replace any lack of due diligence I'm still doing hours and days worth of due diligence before I even buy a little bit of a company. But what I found over the years is it is definitely worth just buying a company and waiting to see management execute. And if they execute, buying a little bit more. And it's okay to buy a stock higher because it's hard to find management teams that execute. And the ones that do, they ultimately end up you know, being some you know, big winners in this space. Uh, but one of the worst things you can do is actually just take a pure buy and hold mentality to microcap investing. These are small, just like private equity, just like venture capital. These are small emerging companies. You know, it's it's kind of like uh, if you have a two-year-old or three-year-old in the house, you can't just leave them at home by themselves. You got to watch them. And that's how these businesses are too. And you got to watch them. And um, some of my big, biggest mistakes were when I took the eye off the ball. And what I mean by that is continuously to track the progress of that company. You know, understanding what the thesis is and what could destroy that thesis, you know, some uh, outside factors or what have you. And so it's important to, at least for me, to, you know, buy a smaller position, be okay with averaging up in it once you see execution. And the best advice I can give to new people actually in microcap that want to get involved in microcap is, this might sound boring to some people maybe listening to this, is focus on the profitable companies. You know, when you look at 10,000 microcap companies that exist in North America, I think 15% are profitable. And you cut out probably, you know, 90% of the issues if you just find a business that's profitable. Um, and you can still make a lot of money if you find a business that's profitable that you think can continuously grow, you know, double digits over the long term. There's there's so many things that are solved by profitability because they clearly yes. have their market and their business figured out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I tend to kind of what I normally do with my investing is I'm trying to find the companies at that inflection point of profitability. And, uh, but there's also risk in doing so, you know, my, my portfolio, you know, probably has 40, 50% turnover in a given year. And, you know, maybe half that turnover 
is because uh, an investment thesis didn't play out or wasn't playing out the way I thought it should. You know, maybe the other half is because I find something uh, better than, you know, my 12th best idea. But there's going to be turnover in a portfolio of microcaps. Not everything deserves to be bought and held and forgotten. There's no such thing as a coffee can portfolio in microcap or else you'd be broke. So Ian, one of your, I guess, now famous lines, at least at least in my opinion, and it's it's gotten around here, is that you like to do the bulk of your due diligence on what you already own versus what you don't own. And while it sounds obvious, you know, when you say it out loud, I feel like a lot of people are always looking for the next idea and not actually spending time, you know, revamping what they currently own. I mean, I know VCs and funds have quarterly check-ins and they're in constant contact with teams. But individual investors, I feel like, you know, you know, might go on vacation mentally with something and kind of hope returns are there. How do you kind of think through, you know, your your thought process there? You know, the overall, what I believe is what you don't own can't hurt you. And so I want to focus on what can hurt me first. And that's what I own. And, you know, I'm still, you know, a full-time investor today, not because of the gains I've had, but it's it's because of my ability to escape the large losses. And a lot of that is due to just knowing what I own better than most other investors that are in that company and being able to um, spot the signs of that investment thesis cracking and selling before other people do, you know, and that's just, that's just the hard nosed fact of it. (laughs) No, no, it's, it's fair. I mean, it's, uh, it's easy to say though, but how do you disconnect yourself emotionally for, I mean, these aren't, you know, you're not out here buying Verizon, right? You're out here spending a year or two investing, you're meeting the team, you get to know their, you know, potentially their family, what they're interested in. Like you, you have a really solid relationship and then you have to go and cut it. How do you mm-hmm. emotionally deal with that? It's hard. You know, it's hard at first. And I think that's why it's hard to to do that in the beginning. But when you're a full-time investor, you know, and you are supporting yourself, supporting your, you know, your wife, your family, or whoever it is, you know, they're 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 number one. And, you know, every time that I, but the biggest losses I've took in most things are things that I shouldn't have because I spot the signs and I just decided to hold off from selling. And, you know, it, but it, but it, but it is difficult because it feels very transactional and you're right. You know, I tend to get to know the CEOs fairly well. You know, it just happened to me in the last six months where it's, you know, it's a company I own for three years, you know, and the stock all of a sudden did really, really well. And I think, you know, outstripped sort of the potential over the five, over the next five years and I had to sell it. And it was kind of weird going back to the CEO and just saying, Hey, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm out. He was, you know, he understood, but it's still, it still definitely has that transactional feel, you know, which, um, kind of sucks to be honest with you, but you, you get used to it. It's like, it's okay to marry these things, but you do have to be prepared to divorce quickly, you know, or else you're going to take your losses. Yeah. No, you see a lot of, uh, I mean, I, I see it in our, the new space now, there's just a lot of cult following a lot of people, getting married. I mean, I guess because that's more retail, but it, I think that's what separates the real kind of legendary investors from everybody else. It's not their winners, but their ability to kind of cut losses. And the and when you own something, especially if you have a platform like you do, Tom, um, or, you know, other people, you know, in, in stocks or microcaps too, you know, the more you talk about something publicly, the harder it is to turn on that thing when you know you should, because you've already kind of stamped your name to it. Um, yeah. And, you know, so you know, my best advice to people is like, just don't talk openly. Don't, don't, don't talk openly about what you own unless you have the willpower to kind of turn your back to what you just said and do the right thing and sell, you know, and unless you can do that, 
you know, and cut out the emotion of it. You know, don't don't be talking about what you own publicly. Yeah, no, that that's totally fair. I, I definitely agree there. And you know, getting on that tangent of you know exiting an investment, there's obviously a lot that goes into your due diligence process. I, I'd love to kind of talk through, I guess, certain aspects here. I guess on the management side of things, a big part of your investing is betting on the horse. What turns you off, I guess, initially from an investment base of the management team, and then I guess if you're in something and you exit because of the management team, like two different times, what turns you off and leads you to sell based on the management team? Now, usually, it usually it comes back to execution, just a lack of execution, and when you start making excuses for the management teams that you own, when it's you know quarter after quarter of them saying that they would do things and they just don't do them. Um, I think that's that's number one. Uh, you know, actually, I don't know if we hit on this earlier in the interview, but I ended up writing a, a couple books. The first one was called Intelligent Fanatics Project with another microcap club member, uh, Sean Eddings. And the reason why we we wrote this book was I was really interested in fine tuning my qualitative lens for in, for finding great leaders of these companies. You know, and intelligent fanatics is a term that Charlie Munger used in one of his speeches. And he talks about several intelligent fanatics in his speeches. And some of them are known, like a Herb Kelleher uh, of Southwest Airlines. And then some of them are less known, like a Les Schwab, who founded a private company. Um, and so what we wanted to do is kind of look at those entrepreneurs that started companies, built them up, sustained their dominance. They oftentimes dominate their niche geography or industry for decades. Like, how did they dominate an area for decades. I mean, that sounds incredible. Um, and so, what Sean and I did was we kind of researched these intelligent fanatics, um, re, you know, wrote their stories, wrote about how they built their businesses, and pulled out valuable lessons. And you know, really, it was a fun book. Um, I think it's a book for entrepreneurs as much it is as it is investors. Uh, but it really kind of gave me a, a clear lens into trying to find these great leaders early in these small companies, because the smaller the company, the more important management becomes. And if you want to find great companies, you got to find great leaders. And so just thought I'd give you that little that little side um, side story before we get into this subject. Yeah, so, no, but, but Ian, back on, I mean, just not to interrupt you, but on that point, I mean, the book, I read it, I loved it. Uh, for those who don't know, I mean, what are some of the most interesting things that you found on the qualitative basis? I mean, you talked about being able to dominate an industry for Mm-hmm. for decades. But I mean, I guess what people in your space are looking for are are signs of those aspects before they're reflected in the market or over a career, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and a lot of the aspects of intelligent fanatics that we found is you can't, you can't find these unless you're willing to do the work and do that qualitative due diligence. And so really, when you look at a company that that has something special. They have employees that love them, love the management team, love the company, and they have customers that love the product or service. And that's what I'm trying to find first and foremost in the companies I'm trying to find is, you know, an employee base that has a great culture that loves to work there, you know, where they're not willing to, you know, move across the street for a dollar an hour or more that are really there and are internally motivated. Finding those great cultures, you have to talk to employees. So you have to be willing to do that as an investor. Uh, and the second part of that is just trying to find, you know, customers that love the product or service that that company is selling. And that, again, takes some on the ground due diligence, talking to customers, even talking to suppliers. Uh, and that just takes time and work. You know, all of this stuff, you know, finding a great company is 95% what I just described, and yet 95% of investors don't do those things. And so to do that, to 
have above average returns, you got to do what other people aren't willing to do. Yeah, that's how hard is it, though, to do that? I mean, like, are the CEOs here giving you access to the suppliers and the employees and the products? Or is this you, you know, throwing on your, your cape and going out at night and kind of talking to these people? Like, how exactly is it from the investing point of view? It's a little bit more of the latter, you know, kind of throwing on the cape. And, you know, because honestly, if you're asking the CEO to make introductions for you, obviously, it's going to introduce you to people that like him. That's fair. So. Um, so a lot of it's kind of sleuthing, uh, which is another great book, by the way, The Sleuth Investor. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so a lot of it is you're actually trying not to get their introductions to people. You're trying to do it on your own. That's now that that's totally fair. And then I guess just going back to our earlier point on why you would exit based on the management team, you, you best you pointed to execution. Is there anything else you would think about? Like, I know, you know, some of the things I ran across when I was on Microcarp Club is some of the CEOs um, I didn't personally like, but they were still successful. And I had a hard time kind of bridging that, you know? Yeah, no, it is. That's why it always comes back to execution because you can find people with different type of character traits. Uh, and some of them are likable. Some of them are not likable. You know, some of them are good salesmen and some of them you feel couldn't sell water in a desert. Um, <laughs> you know, and it just comes back, just comes back to execution. Probably one of the biggest things actually, ironically, out of the book that I've done a lot more over the last few years is when you're evaluating a CEO is actually not to talk to the CEO as much is actually to talk, talk to the people that are around him or her, you know, talk to the the presidents or vice presidents around them, if you can, um, and get a, a clear picture of what they think of the leader and also the company themselves. And you'd be amazed by how honest you you on how honest some of the answers are that you'll get. I mean, when I first tell you this, you think, oh yeah, I'm sure they're going to say everything's great. But a lot, it's funny how all of a sudden you, you get somebody on an off day and they tell you, you know, the real story. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's worth, it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile doing. Yeah, no, that that's fair. And also, I mean, the companies you're addressing, I mean, it's not really like, you know, you got to go through 20 you know legal teams to talk to these guys like they'll give you more candid answers because they're smaller kind of startups yes yeah exactly i mean a lot of them um i I would say you know and what i get asked that question quite a bit like how do you approach a management team and i always say uh well how do you literally approach them is you know through their website through their investor relations contact or whatever but you know what i always say when you do approach them always make sure you're over prepared you know, because I think whether you're investing $5,000 into a stock or $5 million into a stock, they just like to know that you did the work and they'll respect you if you did the work. And, you know, you do that by not going into the conversation, asking them what they do, you know, and so, you yeah, know, really yeah. simple questions. You do it by doing a lot of that work up front. So, you know, the right questions to ask. No, that, that's totally fair. And I guess just more operationally, do you take positions privately or or do you go out in the open market how do you approach the investment side once you're kind of convinced and you want to allocate your first say third um it's it's usually in the open market i mean a lot of a lot of what i'm trying to find are companies that don't need capital so that means i'm not really participating in a fundraise or equity offering uh, i'm really trying to find what i'm trying to find is i kind of visual if you want to visualize it i want to find lightning in a bottle you know i want to find a company that's growing 30, 40% a year that has really, really good margins, that has really great operating margins, 
that maybe have just eclipsed the profitability or maybe they are profitable already or you think they will be in the next six months and they have the balance sheet to get them there. You know, but what what you find in this space is the companies that have the biggest moves, and I'm talking about sustained moves, you know, not ones that flash in the pan, you know, went up 5x and then went straight back down. You know, but the ones that can sustain a big move and become a small cap company are the ones that drive earnings per share and they drive it quickly. And so if you can find a, a small company that's grown double digits, that's profitable, that, you know, if you can find something that can get to a dollar per share in earnings really quickly, those are the ones that can just make really epic moves and can stay high as well. Now that that's fair. And do you invest around the world or are you focused on investments in say the U S and Canada kind of around here? Uh, I'm in the U S Canada, um, the UK and Australia. Damn Australia. That sounds, uh, that sounds interesting. I'm tempted to ask what the company is. But we don't have to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I just recently, so I, I was normally, that's another thing that's that's kind of evolved in microcap is it's becoming more and more important for microcap investors to not be restricted by borders, you know. And so it's it you know Canada kind of first started opening up to U.S. investors. I mean, it was always open, but I found that very few people were investing in Canadian microcaps back in 2012. Well, that's changed now. Now you're probably having just as many people investing in Canadian microcaps as are down here in the U.S. You know, and then going across the pond to the U.K. I mean, there's a thousand companies on their London AIM exchange that are basically microcap companies. And the reason I started looking over there, and this was just in the last two years, is they they still do small IPOs um, with real companies over there. You know, unlike here in the U.S., where the only things that are IPOing as a microcap company is a life science company that's you know raising 10 million, 5 million, 20 million for a phase one study. You know, you actually have real you know high quality businesses going public as small 50 million market cap companies over in the UK. And the odd, the other odd fact about over there different from here is you have like BlackRock participating in them. And yeah, that's fidelity. And it's just, it's, it's, it's just a different world. And it's weird. And what attracted me there is I, I kind of just stumbled upon a few of them and I looked and, you know, these are companies that went public two, three years ago and they ended up going up five X, 10 X, 20 X. And uh, that kind of excited me about the opportunity in the UK. And it's English-speaking, similar accounting rules. And I felt comfortable doing that. So I started looking at those. And then Australia is kind of similar to Canada, where it's historically been a very resource-centered um, market. Uh, but now it's kind of turned from resource into technology. And you can find some, some really interesting companies there. And, uh, and the nice thing about here in the US is a lot of the companies in Canada and the Australia um, there's quite a few of those that actually have U.S. symbols, so you can buy them in a brokerage account, a TD Ameritrade, uh, you know, a normal discount brokerage firm. You can actually have access to those markets. That's so. I mean, a lot of people in crypto are also investing in small startups that are highly liquid, right? And a lot of the education and discussion happens publicly in communities, et cetera. How do you, as an investor, enter? into an illiquid position. How long does it take you to build up that first third? I know it you know it depends on volume and, and your position size, but how do you approach it from a patient standpoint from a time perspective as well? Yeah, I mean some some of them are easier to buy than others, you know, especially if you know if you're if you have a portfolio of $100,000 versus 5 million, that's a big difference. You know, um, but you know, for example, 
you know, I, I put on a, an initial position in a company not too long ago, and it took me about a month to acquire the shares. Wow. You know, because because you're not trying to influence the market either. It's a lot of just putting in a bid and seeing if somebody hits it, and it might not get hit in a day, and then all of a sudden somebody might hit you, and then it hit you again, and so you might get, you know, that month's worth of stock in in four of those days, but you had to have a bid out there to get it. Yeah, now that that's fair. And Ian, you're I mean, you're built on the idea of finding, you know, hundred baggers, potentially thousand baggers. How often does a play come across your desk that you'll move on? Like I'm assuming there's only, you know, potentially a handful a year that you would even consider, but is there, you know, five a year, ten a year, maybe one a year? How often do these come around, these lightning in a bottle type ideas? Well, it kind of goes back to if if I was right all the time, you know, I'd be on an island somewhere and we wouldn't be having this conversation. So <laughs> So That's I would fair. say it, it, it's it's more like I would say it's it's probably closer to five a year that I would act on, and out of those five, you know, you might be just wrong on a couple of them that you maybe bought an initial position on, you know, and the other other two you might be right for a period of time and you might make some money on it might go up you know thirty fifty percent a hundred percent twenty percent whatever the number is. And that's kind of all it was. And then you have maybe one out of the five that actually ends up being one that is a sustainable winner. And that sustainable winner might mean it might go up, you know, two or three or four X over a three or four period year period of time. It might mean that it goes up that quick in a year. Um, but it's a sustainable type of situation, not just kind of flash in the pan, what I described before. So I, I would say maybe maybe one out of five in a year ends up being something that you know, you're holding on to for a long period of time, like two, three, four years, you know, and probably a great question for you to ask me, which I'll ask myself, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) just to kind of prove about this, it's really hard just to buy and hold is if you were to ask me how many of the companies that you owned five years ago, are you holding today? You know, I consider myself a pretty long-term investor in this space. I'm holding one company out of probably 30 or 40 that I've owned one. You know, so that that means that there's a lot of renting in some of these situations and it doesn't sound sexy, especially in the world of, you know, just buy and hold and forget about it and compound your capital and this or that, you know, that doesn't work down here, you know, so you're going to have turnover. Yeah, it doesn't mean you can't be successful. Yeah. And and I don't know why I'm thinking about this now, but when we talked about the negative kind of connotation that microcap investing gets, it's kind of at odds with what happens in crypto because there's funds in crypto that like A16Z just raised a $500 million fund. There's funds with hundreds of millions of dollars investing in tokens at sub, you know, not even 300 million, but sub 100 million, sub $50 million valuations, and everyone's okay with it. So I think that that's lending some credibility to there is obviously ways to outperform when you're investing very, very early on. It it is, and especially in. So, if you want to look at think about small emerging market arenas for companies, you know, you have private equity, venture capital, microcap. Those first two areas are are obviously private companies. Our area is public, but we're all investing in the same types of things: small emerging, growing companies. And yet, private equity, venture capital gets all the limelight. You know, they're you know, you have Andreessen, you have all of these ones like you just mentioned, you have all these firms, institutions that are kind of controlling the best deals. 
You know, so unless you're a part of their inner circle, unless you went to Harvard and hung out at these colleges, unless you have a buddy that worked somewhere, you aren't getting access to the best deals. And yeah, there's some platforms that are trying to make it easier for people like you and me to participate in them. But let's just be honest, we're not getting the best deals. Where it changes is, you know, microcap. The funny thing is those same institutions, those those folks that are controlling billions of dollars that are investing in those types of things, it's the opposite actually of microcap. They couldn't invest down here if they wanted to, because for them, having no liquidity is better than illiquidity, you know, because they get to control their deal, to control the terms and things like that. So they can't ever come down into the public realm because they just manage too much capital. It's not worthwhile to them. And that's the beauty of this ecosystem and microcap is here, you as a small astute investor actually have the edge because they can't invest down here. You know, it's like the opposite of that private world, which is kind of unique and you know, there's, there's obviously there's risk, just like there's risk, um, you know, in private equity and, and, and venture capital, obviously, you know, you're not going to be right all the time. Um, it's tough or else everybody be doing it, obviously. But I think there's definitely a structural advantage that isn't talked about in microcap. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you there, especially on, on it, especially on the token side as well in crypto, but it's, it's unrelated, which just speaks to the market. And, you know, I want to get your thoughts on the economy here. I mean, you're seeing like, Obviously, the economy is, you know, we're we're in a tough spot here. We have the virus. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But what I am trying to grapple with is you're an investor in small companies, and it feels like small companies, small businesses are the ones getting hit the hardest as money flows to make Bezos, you know, a trillionaire. So how do you think through like the global macro kind of view and, and how it affects your companies? Or is that not something that, you know, is too important considering these are niche companies that have balance sheets that are targeting a specific niche. Yeah, I mean I I try not to think too much about it. It doesn't mean I try to be prepared, but I don't overthink it. And so maybe a place where I've evolved a little bit is you know, I'm mainly looking for four things out of the, out of the investments that I'm making into these microcap companies, you know, and it's the first one is a business that can grow through a recession. Maybe it's not a COVID-19 recession because everything's gotten killed. <laughs> But in general, a business that can still grow through a recessionary period, you know, and, and just that one statement there that cuts out 95% of companies. You know, the second thing out of the four, a balance sheet that can weather a storm and kind of act with occasional boldness and maybe take advantage of that recessionary time period. You know, so again, that probably takes out, you know, so if we're left with 5%, that probably takes it down to two. Then third, a stock that can conservatively double in three years. So it's at a valuation that it makes sense to purchase those shares. So I may take it from two down to one. And then, you know, like I said before, an organization that's actually run by a leader that you want to invest in, an intelligent fanatic, that might take that 1% down to 0.5%. So of the entire ecosystem of stocks, the, the situations that you want to be invested in, for me, it's probably 0.5% of that. And then from there, actually finding and drilling down even further. So it the good thing about you, good thing about me, and a lot of other people listening to this is you're not managing five billion dollars. You know, you can choose to be picky, and you can wait for the right opportunities, and that's a big, big advantage. And so I'm just really picky. I'm a high hurdle rate for what I invest in. Now I I love that laser focus. I mean, it's unrelated. But in crypto, you saw a lot of major funds bid up and get involved in, you know, projects that can and will never deliver at billion-dollar valuations just because they had to 
allocate capital. So it kind of demonstrates what you're talking about on this side of the pond as well. I guess when you talk about the intelligent fanatics again, I'm kind of interested in how often does management take your advice and how often do you get into arguments with them? Do you care if they take your advice? Like, How do you think through your role in helping drive the companies you invest in? I don't really view myself as having a role in it. I'm, I'm trying to find the ones that are already doing it because that means it comes naturally to them. That's and fair. I'm not, I'm not looking to drive change myself. It's kind of like when, and, you, and you've run into this because you were, you were investing in microcast before, it's kind of like the, the people that complain and moan and yell at the CEO for not buying stock in the open market. You know, why aren't you buying a stock down here? Why aren't you buying? And then they finally do and they buy $500 worth. Like that means anything. Yeah, exactly. Because like what you want to see is a person or a CEO buy stock because they think they're, it's undervalued because they want to buy it, not because you force them to buy it. And so (laughs) it's it's kind of similar to, to, but that's granular, but similar situation to what you just described. I'm trying to find these people that are doing it naturally themselves, where it doesn't need me to say, hey, you should be doing it this way. I'd rather a CEO make another sales call than buy five hundred dollars worth of stock. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. The uh, so you know we have a little bit of time left. I'll, I'll cap it in an hour. I know I want to keep this you know great for the listeners. I want to talk about either your best or your worst investment and what you learned. I guess I'll pose the question to you. We could we could take whichever one you think is more interesting and, and you're more comfortable talking about. Um. I mean, the bad ones, you learn a lot. The good ones, you also learn a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe one of the bad ones. And I I don't like to, if you haven't caught on yet, I don't really mention any individual public names. I don't like to. um, No, no, yeah, you definitely don't have to. But one of them, maybe one of the losers was early on. It was was a company I took a major position in back right when I became a full-time private investor. So this was around 2009. And it might have been 2010 by the time I made this investment. But I it was a major position. It was about 35% of my portfolio. So that was, you know, very large into a into a company. You know, it was growing 25% a year, had no debt, had 25% of its market cap in cash. It was trading at 12 times earnings. You know, you can just feel your mouth watering, just me describing that if you understand stocks and companies and valuations. But the the company made these electronic lottery cards that were being used in different international lottery markets. And I met the management team twice and they seemed competent, uh, you know, but I never really understood the product really well. It's kind of, you looked at it, you're like, all right, you know, they're selling these things. It sounds great. But, you know, I was drawn to the valuation and the fundamentals and the stock doubled over the course of six, not, six months, which is pretty good, you know, because it was a 12, Traded 12 times earnings and it probably stayed at 12 times earnings because it was growing revenues and earnings pretty rapidly. But then all of a sudden, one morning, I woke up at a PR hit that the auditor was not going to sign off on the financials. And they reported $10 million being missing that was skimmed from the books over two years. Oh and the stock, was, the stock was halted immediately. And when it reopened the following, I think it was the next morning or two, it was down 70%. And I sold my I sold my entire position and got lucky. I think I only lost about forty percent of my money overall because it went up quite a bit before it got cut by seventy percent. Um, but then the stock got halted again, and over the next few months it went to zero. And uh, the le- the lesson I learned was was not to put great looking fundamentals ahead of understanding the product and and how the money flows. You know, really, you know, one of the questions I asked management is just like just 
all right, I buy a, you know, how does the money flow in your business <laughs> to understand? Yeah. In addition, I, you know, I don't, and so probably the main takeaway is I don't really invest in anything unless I have a firm belief into the product or service of what they're selling, um, you know, whatever it is. And so that was one of the takeaways there. And, and, and yeah, so that was probably one of the ones that sticks out to me. No, that's helpful context. I mean, the, the other thing is, I mean, it's 2009, 2010, horrible financial crisis. You just cut the cord on your job and you're now a full-time investor. And now you have to deal with this. How did you think about, you know, not being a full-time private microcap investor at that point? I mean, maybe crossed your mind or, or did you, I mean, you obviously stuck with it, which I love, but how did you kind of deal with that period um, yourself? No, it, it was definitely hard because you second guess a lot of things. Um, but at that point in time, 2010, I was about to get married. So I didn't have any kids at that point in time. And it was, it was a struggle, you know, but, and there, there's been a couple of times over my career as just being a private full-time investor that, that, um, got a little bit shaky, but I never have had a plan B and you just figure it out. You just grind and grind and grind. Like nothing horrifies me more than having a day job. I love that. You know. uh, yeah, no, I'm the same way. I love that. I love that. And um, Ian, before you go, um, I'd love to talk about one of your favorite investments. What went right? You don't have to mention the name, uh, but I'd love to hear kind of story of how you got involved, why you invested more potentially, and, and how it panned out. Which one I should talk about? There's over 600 on Microcap Club, so yeah, no, I mean, I'm trying to. <laughs> no, I know, to like- I know. It should be one more in the present or uh, more in the past. Actually, one of them that's a kind of a fun story was it, it was back when I was investing in more gold and precious metals, so 2005, 2006. It was a company I stumbled upon at a conference. It was the first conference they ever presented at as a public company. And I got to know the management team quite well. And the stock was an IPO at a dollar per share. And they had some land down in Mexico that they wanted to develop into a mine, which sounds outrageous. Um, but they had, but there was a management team that did it five or six times before, meaning put something into production, produce gold. They had a good history with it. And so I just got to know them really well. And I bought a bunch of stock for myself, which was a decent chunk of my net worth at that point in time, uh, stayed close to the story. And they told people, Hey, listen, our goal is to get this land down here. We're going to drill it, drill out what we believe is a, um, an amount of gold that we know that we can make a production decision and then build a mill and get into production. I'm like, okay. That usually takes 20 years, by the way. They said, we want to do that in, in four or five. Oh. Oh. And, and they said, guess what? And when we do, because of the economics of uh, the ground and the ore body, you know, we know that we can be a low-cost producer. And what that meant back then was we know that we can produce gold at $200 an ounce. That's our cost. And so we know that we're going to be very profitable. And when we are profitable, we're going to pay out, you know, a third of that's going to go to taxes, a third's going to go to exploration and maintenance, and the other third's going to go to a dividend to shareholders. And again, this was just when they had a piece of land, you know, they're saying this. Fast forward, and everybody said they were liars. Fast forward four or five years, and they went into production. And this, the stock ended up going from a dollar to about 10 when they hit production about four years later. And two years after that, they paid a dollar per share dividend a year. 
you know, which that's was, your cost basis, <laughs> which was the cost basis. Now, <laughs> the horrifying part of that was I sold out by them, you know, but I remember, I remember seeing them continue. Uh, I remember yeah. seeing them continuing to succeed, and you start like counting the money. You're like, wait a minute, if I would have just hold on to my share, that would be <laughs> that's like retirement. You know what I mean? <laughs> You'd be on that island. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that that's one that was a fun one because it was um, it, it was a fun situation because it involved dividends, mining, you know, a, a management team that knew what they were doing, but nobody believed them. Uh, they bucked the trend of conventional uh, norms, and they're still around today. Uh, they went they went through they did go through a bad spell at one point, but uh, it's one that is kind of near and dear to my heart because everything kind of went against the grain of common sense, and they succeeded. No, that's that's an incredible story. Jeez, yeah, you always think about it after the fact, like what it would be worth. It's, I mean, you, you had a great play though. How long did it take from entry to your exit there? That was five years. So that was that was five years, and that was I probably averaged a ten bagger on that. Wow. Have you? Um, I hate to ask the question, but have you hit the infamous hundred bagger in your career? No, I haven't. I I'm still waiting on that one. I figure when I when I get that hundred bagger, I'll write a book about it because you know it'll it'll be a lot of memories of probably going against the grain of conventional thought and everybody screaming at you to sell the whole way. Yeah, <laughs> that's usually usually how it is. Well, Ian, this has been uh, this is incredible, man. I, I love what you've built. I love kind of your focus on finding the best leaders first, the best companies, and I think it's incredible that you uh, built such a engaged community that's over you know, 10 or 12 years old at this point, and then built that into books and a summit and, and now a fund. I, I really, uh, huge fan. No, but, I appreciate uh, you having me on. Uh, it's, it's, it's an honor to be on here. And one of the things that, you know, you were one of the youngest people to get on microcap club. And one of the things I remember about you, um, that I still remember about you is just your intensity and in going after everything that you did 110%. It didn't matter if you were 19 years old or 27 or however old you are now, but, um, but uh, I'm watching you, and I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing as well. So thanks for appreciate me that, on. Ian. It means a lot. And Ian, let people know where they can uh, find you on Twitter and how they can submit their pitch to Microcap Club. Sure, um, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is my name, Ian Castle. That's I A N C A S S E L on Twitter. And you can find the information about Microcap Club at microcapclub.com. That's awesome. It'll be linked in the show notes. Everybody listening, you can just scroll down on your phone, check them out, and uh, hopefully you know, throw your email on there or, or throw a pitch on there. Ian, this has been uh, incredible, man. Until next time. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon. <laughs>